Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. This edition is sponsored by the Tricord Group, leading successful relationship constructs for over 25 years, and Vim, helping the architecture and design disciplines design, deliver, and operate better buildings for a better world. Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. Well, over the last few weeks, we've had an opportunity to talk to several professionals and leaders from around the world to get their perspective on what's been altered coming out of this COVID-19 pandemic and how it's affected their practices, their everyday life. We asked them to contemplate the following questions. What lessons did you observe and adopt coming through the pandemic regarding the built environment industry, your practice, and your society? What do you predict to be the permanent changes in your region, in your industry, in your practice, and maybe in your life that will be adopted in the post-pandemic world? And thirdly, at Design Intelligence, we hold that equity, healthiness, and the environment are inextricably linked. How do you, as a planner or architect, an engineer or constructor, functionally apply such thinking to the work of the built environment industry moving forward? We recorded these conversations over a period of weeks, and so instead of me being able to have a direct conversation one-on-one -on -one like we usually do, you're going to hear a series of pre-recorded responses to these from these folks. They're rich, they're meaningful. I hope you'll take the time to listen. It's always fun to catch up with our friend Paul Hyatt. Paul is an independent consultant practicing out of London. He is the founding partner of Vickery Hyatt, and he is an honorary fellow of the AIA, was a principal with HKS Architects for 20 years, and is a past president of the Royal Institute of British Architects. Let's hear his thoughts on these important themes. It's always insightful. Well, with respect to lessons that we've learned here at our built environment industry, I think it might be helpful if I just painted a bit of a picture of Britain during this time. The nation, I think, was put pretty quickly into a state of shock. We're not a large land um, 600 miles from the north to the south. I don't think any part of the England is further than 57 miles from the sea. So it's a smallish place. Uh, our cities are very, very close together. And they are also very large. They form quite large metropolises now, cities almost merging into each other. I'm thinking particularly up through the Midlands and the Potteries areas. And so the shock was quite profound because the government actually instructed people to cease going to work and stay at home in all but the most limited of functions, for example, hospitals. Schools were shut. Universities were shut. Many supply chains remained open, but they were only for emergencies. And to give you an idea of that, I'm a blood runner. This is a voluntary activity. I deliver emergencies materials to hospitals, mainly from blood banks. And so I was out on the road the whole way through. And from seeing busy roads, I went to seeing silent roads. I could travel 40 and 50 miles up the motorway and see only four or five cars. I'm talking about a profound shock to the nation. We hadn't had anything like it in our living memory. I was born just after the Second World War, 
Our parents talked about this kind of thing. Our grandparents talked about Spanish flu. We'd never seen anything like it. So there was the shock. In terms of the lessons that we've learned, I think we've learned that we should never, ever be so ill-prepared again. The first big thing that happened was that there was a severe threat of our hospitals being overwhelmed completely. We have a national health service here. If you've got anything serious, major heart surgery, liver transplant, it's to the national health service you go. Uh, private hospitals are only for elective surgeries, really, pretty small stuff. And so the National Health Service is a critical part of our nation. It's the biggest employer in Europe, and it's the darling of the nation. People here are deeply proud of the National Health Service. And we were told by our government that the National Health Service may be overwhelmed. Nobody had ever heard anything like that before either. And so we were immediately faced with the prospect of the hospitals being converted to deal with this pandemic, all non-emergency operations were cancelled, all of the activity was cancelled. Private hospitals were pretty well nationalised, they were told to stay as empty as possible so that they could be used in emergencies. And we had an architectural team and an engineering team under McDonald's build emergency hospitals and very large ones called Nightingale Hospitals and they did that by converting large conference centres. One of them was in the Excel Centre in London. And that was immediately put together for, I think, some 2,000 beds in order to cope with the anticipated overwhelming problem that was coming down the tracks. So in future, I think we will be better equipped in terms of our psychological condition to cope with a shock of this kind, but we'll also be far, far better organised than we've ever been before. Yes, the Excel Centre in East London was a rapidly converted building. I think it took about four and a half weeks to do it. The army were involved, heavily involved. Emergency equipment was brought in and they created a four and a half thousand bed hospital within an existing building, complete with, wait for it, it's deeply, deeply disturbing complete with mortuary. So that, that was the kind of shock that we had. I um, think that uh, from that, we can then look at our response as employers. Um, the firm I was with has 1,500 people or had 1,500 people around the globe. Um, we were quickly converted to working from home and our IT divisions set up our staff to be able to do that in future. Uh, throughout this uh, pandemic, and we're still not properly back at work. That situation, I think, will be a lasting legacy because I don't think there will be any return to the pre-COVID arrangements. We will now, in future, be working partly from home and partly from offices. So IT has improved vastly as a result as well. We've also got used to working in a completely different way. And whereas, and I, I speak as somebody who was traveling extensively. I was on a plane every week for the previous two to three years and at least a couple of times a month for the previous six or seven years. And I had um, stopped that because of a change in working pattern of a job that I had to take on. But the old pattern of going to meetings, traveling extensively, which many senior executives were used to doing when they had operations around the globe, 
I think that's going to be pretty well brought to a halt and people will be asking the question in future, why should we travel? Why do we need to do this when we've demonstrated that we can work so effectively remotely? And I'm talking about sharing screens, conferences on screens, and to give you just three examples. Um, I've been involved in the World Architecture Festival, which is a judging process for the world's best architects. And we had a China section of that this year. We did it all remotely, 160 entries, all judged. I was on a judging panel at one occasion with a Dutch architect speaking from Holland, um, an Australian architect speaking from Sydney, and myself from London. And we were judging work which was being shown to us on screen by candidates in China. Um, why would we ever want to try and gather together in the same room again? We did it so efficiently. Another example is with my partner, Ben Vickery. Uh, Vickery hired applied for a job that we wouldn't have even applied for before. And that is a project for a new stadium in Christchurch in New Zealand. And it's a 30,000-seater stadium. And we applied for the role of client advisor throughout that project. We bid for the job electronically. We were interviewed virtually. We won the job with other team members, one in Brisbane and one in New Zealand and one in London. And we're working on the job and we've never met the client. And I suspect we probably won't meet the client, but we're actually able to analyze all the drawings, all the proposals and join in all of the workshop meetings remotely. As I say, we would have never even entertained submitting for that project before. So we have learned some profound lessons and they're going to change the way we work in the future without a shadow of doubt. Yes, there are going to be a, a number of changes and this will surprise you, I think. One of them will be to professional indemnity insurance world. That is an astonishing side effect of all this. We're reeling in this country from the astonishing consequences of a terrible disaster, which was the Grenfell Tower disaster, where 73 people died when a residential tower block burned out in 2017. And that's had a profound uh, and extremely serious impact on our PI insurance world, because the claims consequent upon that have been very heavy as the realization kicks in that many, many buildings here, but also around the world, have been built with what's known as ACM cladding, aluminium composite panel cladding. This isn't a story about that, but the point is the insurance world was on its knees as a consequence of that. I was speaking with a, a senior solicitor the other day, and he estimates that we're six months from the COVID-related PI claims kicking in. And they are claims that are going to be consequent on a series of events uh, related to delays in building contracts. And the course the builders weren't able to get their buildings advanced when they were under construction with the same efficiency as before. But with that, there, of course, follows claims. And the question in relation to that is, was this an extraordinary event? Insurance policies usually protect from extraordinary events like acts of war and some natural disasters. But what's been happening in the 
confident and cosy period since the Second World War is that we've got more and more confident, I'm using the word again, but more and more confident that we won't be having those kind of events. And so we've allowed clients to take those out of our policies. And the situation now is that um, many architects are being charged with having been late with their information and builders have been charged with being late with their handover and for design and build contracts because the contracts have been slowed down. And the argument is, on the one hand, well, um, this is a pandemic. Nobody had any anticipation of such an extraordinary event. And on the other hand, there's no exclusion in your insurance policies. You've allowed these to be taken out. And so the claims are going to come in against the professionals. And this is, of course, very serious because it comes on the top of an insurance industry, which is already reeling under the um, shock of Grenfell. It's called force majeure. It's a French term, force majeure. And um, these disputes will feed lawyers, I think, for a decade and more as new case law emerges around them. Developers and contractors are going to clamour to establish their rights in all this, and it'll all be fought out on the court floor. But the problem is it'll all be paid for by the insurance companies, which is going to have profound impacts on the cost of premiums and also on what is and isn't insurable. The design challenges will emerge as well. First of all, we can just look at it with population. The explosion in population that has taken place in the, in the last 100 years has been incredible. Um, the urbanization, industrialization, urbanization have had the most profound effects. But we're now facing a situation where we've got about 50% of the entire world's building stock that's all the square meterage or square footage, as you say in America, of buildings that we have around the world will be rebuilt in the next 20 years. Well, I, when I say rebuilt, I mean we will be building an area of building equivalent to 50% of what's already up. And 35% of that will be in a combination of China and America. The rate of development is colossal as per nothing we have ever seen before. And um, we're going to also be watching that in the context of an, an ongoing, massively increasing human population. So it's buildings to meet habitation needs and buildings to meet cultural and work and all the other things that we do. And that is going to, of course, produce profound fervor challenges in terms of healthy environments and they come at the absolute extremes start with the first one the, the industrial revolution threw up so seriously for us and that was the public health when you get large numbers of people living in dense environments public health is the major challenge and we had that in this country, our focus on Britain and England, uh, major cities, Manchester being one of them, and Liverpool another, all the major cities that began to emerge in the Industrial Revolution had serious health problems. We'd seen the fire of London back in the 17th century, that's a safety issue. Um, we'd seen the plague back in the 17th century, uh, that was viruses through rats and the like. 
but by the time we got to the 19th century, we were seeing extensive cholera in our cities, and it was because of inadequate or non-existent drainage and poor water supplies. Close of the 19th century in Britain, we started to see extremely close relationships emerging between our major professional institutes. The Royal Institute of British Architects was created in uh, 1835. It received its royal charter in the 1860s, and we had um, royal institutes emerging for structural engineering, civil engineering, uh, services came later. Of course, we had the Medical Institute, uh, the British Medical Association and the British Medical Council. And at the close of the 19th century, it was a routine thing for the leaderships of these institutes across complete sectors. So I'm talking about construction industry leaders, RIBA being prominent amongst them, would routinely and regularly meet with the leadership of the um, health profession. So doctors, the president of the British Medical Association, a doctor would meet with the RIBA president and architect to discuss issues of civil engineering, uh, safe drainage, safe habitation. So a combination of those things had led to a coming together. We became so cosy and confident that we had got our cities sorted out and healthcare through services, etc., was not only the service of the medical profession, but through services like drainage and water supply was so well sorted that these relationships started to fade away. And when I became president of the RBA back in the um, 2002, I made contact with the president of the um, BMA um, because we had virtually lost it and began to re-establish it. I believe we're now going to be back into closed dialogue and we will remain in closed dialogue as we continue to develop our cities. And design intelligence is right on the money on this one. We don't just have healthy cities. They need to be planned and they need to be maintained and they need to be operated under strict and sophisticated regulation. There is no other way. You cannot put high-density communities together without very strict controls on the way in which those communities are managed and conduct themselves. And so I think that um, we will have to see wider awareness of the importance of this, but we'll also see new disciplines beginning to emerge, hybrid disciplines where you've got people with a foot in both camps, training and coming forward to be able to manage these sort of issues as their cities get ever more dense, ever more complicated, and ever more sophisticated in their demands. Of course, we will get over COVID and we will find that we can sit next to each other in stadiums again and in churches and we can walk into shopping centres and libraries and we can do all those things. And in this country, would you believe, even in May, we're still not allowed to go into each other's houses. I met in Nottingham last week with my son and his wife and um, our grandson, but we could only sit in the garden. We're not allowed into the buildings, but all will return to normal. But in the future, I think we're going to be, as architects and other professionals in the industry, we're going to be designing viral, intelligent and responsive buildings. And so I'd suggest that at the points of entry, shopping centres, security systems are going to automatically measure our temperature, can you believe? They'll bio-recognise, this will be where the security people come forward, they'll bio-recognise our profiles. I think there's going to be pathogen and monitoring systems that they'll detect on us any 
micro any offending microorganism emissions and all this will happen as we travel up the escalator into the theater or the cinema or into the um, shopping center and we've got a, a famous figure in this country jeremy benfin which is based on utilitarianism which is the maximum benefit for the most people and this will actually cause us to i think see a situation where um in the future buildings will monitor building itself would do it alone it'll monitor who can be safely allowed into the building and suddenly we'll find that people have traveled up the escalator and at the top um, a little guiding hand takes them to the side because it's been discovered by the security systems that they're carrying some virus and they will be barred from entering the building and we're going to find that buildings protect people who are allowed to enter them from people who are not allowed to enter them. The technology is going to be with us very quickly. Much of it is already with us. And that technology will be applied in our best interests. What a shock that might be. The second point I was going to mention uh, is the astonishing changes we've seen to the world. When I was younger, I used to wait in England as a seven and ten year old, uh, very excited to see the uh, video pictures that, well, they were newsreels, they were called, brought to this country by the British Overseas Airways Corporation. And it would be of the first motor race of the year, the International Grand Prix motor racing. And the first one of the year was always in Australia, and they'd bring it to England. And we'd go to the cinema to watch it. And I'm talking about the 1950s. It sounds like I'm a thousand years old. I'm talking about recent history. We would go to the cinema to watch the Formula Racing. Then by the 70s, we could see it on television. And uh, by the 80s, we were seeing it on television in colour in this country. But live on the 70s and 80s, you could watch the Grand Prix live. By the time we got to the 90s, we could actually manage the television in the sense that we could have a pause button, we could video it, we could have somebody call to the house so we'd um, suspend it, we could decide it was boring so we'd fast forward to the end to see one or fast back to the beginning. These are all the things we've been able to do with technology and in the process the globe has shrunk so that just to prepare for this conversation today which has been a pleasure to be a part of Laura sent me messages by email. I replied by email. I left her a message on the telephone. I send an SMS. She replies. We get live onto the phone together and we're communicating in this way. These are the most astonishing changes because they've taken place in literally a nanosecond to midnight in time. We've been on this planet for tens upon tens of thousands of years. And yet the changes that we have seen in information communication, communication technologies, and the way they impact on people, 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 place, and place, place relationships has been astonishing. But with them has come challenges of the like we would have never imagined. The ecological problems, global warming, sustainability agenda, and now pandemics of a kind that we haven't seen. This pandemic would have never caused any significant problem at all historically for the simple reason that people didn't travel, so epidemics didn't travel. This one took off from some suburb of some town in China in December of last year. I might be out by a month, maybe it was November, it matters not. It was in Europe within three and four weeks. It had shut down Britain four weeks later, 
the speed with which epidemics can travel around the world now because of modern aircraft travel and the rest of it means that we cannot think in isolation. We are one globe. And that takes us straight back to design intelligence. We have to design for that one globe, but we have to manage that one globe. And we have got very sophisticated technology for medicines, very sophisticated technology for our construction industry, for our communication industry. But we have not got sophisticated systems of government and particularly international government. No country is alone on this planet today. We are inter related interlinked and we have to have a politics and a socio-politics and political economics which can manage this planet safely in conditions where not only have we have the convenience of immediate communication through IT we've got inconvenience is the, is the understatement we've got the absolute threat of incredibly fast communication of viruses and illnesses and epidemics and pandemics because of our sophisticated transport systems. So the political, social and economic management of this world on an integrated basis is going to have to get itself sorted. We have to sort that because only then can the intelligent design, which design intelligence stands for, become effective and productive in use. Insight Empowered Foresight is a tagline that we've trademarked here at Design Intelligence. I hope you heard both insight and foresight in some of these remarks. Until next time, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of This is Design Intelligence, sponsored by the Tricord Group and Vim. The producer for This Is Design Intelligence is Laura Spells. Sound engineering by Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.